Hello listeners, Tim Sylvie here. Before we introduce today's guest, I need to head through the airwaves to bring in a man who casts F1 opinions through his burgeoning YouTube channel, which is a mere 4,000 subs short of 300,000 strong. So get over there, people. Search for Tomo on YouTube. Give the man a sub and get him to that big milestone. Tom McCluskey, how are you? It's been a while. How are things? It has. I'm good. Yeah, I feel like I've been close to 300,000 for so long now. It's really like the sub growth has just kind of petered out, but the views are still there. People still listen to my opinion and think I'm somewhat relevant. And that's obviously as the, uh, you know, you have to be a bit of a narcissist to put videos of yourself in the internet, right, Tim? Yeah, absolutely. You 100% do. It is difficult though, isn't it? It's hard to to keep that that movement, that forward trajectory going. It is. It's not an, it's not an easy game, but I love what I do. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here once again talking with you, Tim, and talking with today's guest as well. Well, talking of which, shall I introduce him? Yeah, yeah, come on then, come on then, let's see who it is. So today we're joined by Blake Hinsey, or Blake F1, as you may know him. After growing up in Dallas in the US, a chance meeting with a Mazda MX-5 sparked a love affair with motorsport that began behind the wheel before studying mechanical engineering at the University of Texas at Arlington. Following his graduation and working on the brilliant Formula Student Program, he eventually found himself through hard work and determination working at the then Sahara Force India team in Formula One. From there, he went from strength to strength, ending up working with the likes of Max Verstappen in 2016 and 2017. We join him today, however, reinvented as a content creator in Formula One, using his knowledge of the sport to feed his growing audience. It's a pleasure to have him here to chat about his life, career, thoughts and opinions. Blake, welcome to the Motormouth podcast. Tim, good morning. Uh, Tomo, good to see you again twice in one week. It's a treat, man. We need to get up to we need, those are rookie numbers. We need to bump those up. Oh, but that's that was a really, really good intro. And people asked me to introduce myself and what I've done. I could not get anywhere close to what Tim has just done. That was that was really good, man. And I wrote it myself because usually I just get ChatGPT to do it. Uh, it's I was about easier. to say, I was yeah. about to say, don't give him credit until he's no. confirmed it's him. I want to yeah. see the logs, Tim. I want to yeah, see yeah, the logs. No, this, in the this, this was me. This was me. I, I had a, I had a look the other day, not because I not because I'm a narcissist, because I, I wanted to know what does ChatGPT know about me, if anything, and and how nonsense is it? It doesn't know anything about me, which is great. So I'm happy. Uh, I'm happy well, with that. Well, maybe, maybe Blake, today's podcast will feed mm. Chat GPT with the information it needs. So let's start yep. with where are you joining us from today? Because some, something tells me you've got a bit of a you've got you've got a bit of a streamer man background to you yeah. in terms of uh, yeah. in terms of the setup. I've got the Texas flag. That's just to remind me where I grew up. Um, but I'm just outside of Milton Keynes, so not too far from my old working place, yes. middle of nowhere. It's nice and quiet, and uh, if I need to come to London or something, it's not too far from the train station. I always find it funny when like someone from Dallas ends up in somewhere like Milton Keynes. <laughs> I mean, I'm, nothing against Milton Keynes. I live near Milton Keynes, so I've got no problem with it. But you know, it's not the most glamorous destination in the world, is it? Is it weird? Do you like? Do you miss the states? I, I do a little bit, but I'll tell you what though. Milton Keynes is probably one of the cities in the UK that I've been to that reminds me the most. Yeah. of a city at home like you've got like you know there's there's okay they added roundabouts those those are intimidating if you're uh not from around <laughs> these parts intimidating. but but you know everything's a grid system you've got all the big shops that you need to go to so it's it's convenient in that regard and that reminds me of you know being in the u.s especially in dallas but uh yeah it's 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 all right I, you know what I, I've, I've been here for 12 years now uh i i enjoy it i enjoy it the weather is cool. average at best 
at best yeah and then uh but when you know what when there's a great day like this this weekend there's a couple awesome ones i had the barbecue going all weekend and i was just happy i was just mm-hmm. enjoying it so it, you know you, you got to be down and down in the mud a little bit to enjoy the nice days yeah we do and very I, occasionally get a bit weather that is a little bit texan maybe somewhat um but i mean when you first came to the uk did you were you in Milton Keynes from the start? Because was it Oxford Brooks you went to uni? Yeah, yeah. I, I probably spent my first six, seven years around Oxford because that was an easy commute to Force India, for example. And then and then when I was traveling still at Red Bull to, as a performance engineer, you know, the commute to Red Bull from Oxford kind of sucked. But I was only in the office like half the year. The rest of the time I was on an airplane or at a racetrack or something. So that wasn't too bad. But uh yeah, I'm very fond of Oxford. It's just a bit too expensive for me. Yeah, it's know. very expensive. It's a it's content a, creator. It's a lovely city, though. Really, really nice. Well, let, let's dive into the Formula One then. You you were involved with Formula Student, then um, went on to work at Force India when it was Sahara Force India, right? As yeah. a, a, a performance engineer. Do you remember your very first day? Because I'd imagine moving country, coming to a new place, starting at a Formula One team, um, even Force India, where it's you know still sizable, it's it's a it's a proper operation. Did it yep. feel intimidating walking through the doors that first day? A little bit, yeah. And my first day was super interesting. So they had, I can't remember the chassis code, but it was the previous year's Force India chassis, a VJM something, on the seven post rig. And if you're not familiar with what the seven post rig is, it is basically uh, they strap the car down to these platforms. And you basically actuate the suspension and simulate suspension loads and aerodynamic loads, trying to optimize the springs and dampers so you can get better platform control or better mechanical grip out of the car. My first week, I think I spent four days in a row in the seven post rig. And at first you're like, oh my God, it's a real Formula One car in a seven post rig. Uh, three days later, you're like, please, if I never see another seven post rig <laughs> in my life, I will be completely happy. It's a, it's a cold room. It was in the middle of December. And you just hear that, you know, this thing going through these sweep cycles to simulate uh, the motion of the road. And it's just hydraulic sounds. And then it's cold and you wait two minutes for a run to finish. Then you look at the data, you'll change something else and repeat that for four days. Um, that's a really good way to make sure nobody else ever wants to work in vehicle dynamics ever again. <laughs> well, I guess that kind of experience somewhat, because there's so much glamour attached to F1 from the the show point of view, right? And there's obviously certain expectations, but when you go into it, it's, uh, it's going to be, a, I mean, I almost went down that route myself. I was doing motorsport engineering at college and then I got accepted to brew, um, not brew now. Um, what was it? Coventry. Um, yep. and I could have done something similar to formula student. I didn't go down that route in the end, but like, what were your expectations going into your course at Oxford Brooks? Did you know, like, I want to be a performance engineer or were you just like, yeah. I just know I want to work in F1 and I'm not really sure where, but I'm just going to give this a go. I, I I had to think, and it's a really typical thing because you know race engineer is a very visible thing to everybody on the outside. You know, no, but like most people on the outside don't know what a controls engineer is. They don't know what a systems engineer is. They're not sure what an aero performance engineer does versus an aero engineer. But I was like, I think I want to be a race engineer. I like being at the racetrack. I had a little bit of experience at a club level, which is completely amateur, but it's like that environment was was exciting and exhilarating. So I was like, okay, I want to be a race engineer. So I saw a lot of people getting jobs in the industry. But at that point, when I was going to Oxford Brooks, I was like, I will take any job. I will literally take any job to get my foot in the door because I've moved you know, across the world, spent a lot of money in accommodation and tuition fees to, to do a year, to make connections, to meet people. I wanna get into Formula One and I'll take anything to get in the door. Fortunately, 
there was a placement vehicle dynamics student job going and uh the salary was staggeringly impressive it was basically what they would pay you know a, a second year or third year on their placement year which was like peanuts it was bad i'm not even gonna say it out loud but i was like you know i'm 26 this is my first full-time job out of bachelor's degree and a motorsport master's degree and i'm making peanuts i was like i'll take it i'll do it i had to borrow money to keep going that year but it was like the, the foot in the door i'm working in vehicle dynamics very shortly thereafter they're like okay you're not terrible we'll we'll give you a reasonable salary which was still crap <laughs> <laughs> but from 2011 to 2014 was that the period where you were trackside performance engineer so yeah, so I basically went into the team. I was there for eight months. And then you remember Bahrain 2012? There was the, the pro civil protest kicked off and oh. they're like, we're not going to race. We're going to race. We're not going to race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of, the, some of the personnel left the track. They went home. They're like, this is not cool. This is not safe. They left. Uh, and then despite being, you know, persuaded by the team, it's like, you know what? If you guys aren't, if you're not feeling safe, you know, you can go home. This is when Force India skipped free practice too, so they could get back to the hotel under daylight, right? Um, so some people left. They were not allowed to come back, is my understanding. And the next week was uh, Magello test. And after that was Barcelona 2012. They're like, hey, uh, a week ago, a week two weeks before that, I asked the chief engineer, I was like, you know, I'm vehicle dynamics engineer. I've been there for a while, but I'm hungry. I was like, I want to be a trackside performance engineer. You're like, that's the step to be in a race engineer. I want, how, what do I need to do? And he's like, you know what? You're just going to have to wait. You know, you're going to have to serve your time. You're in a good spot. You're working in the simulator with the vehicle dynamics group. That's good, but you just need time. Well, after Bahrain, they're like, hey, uh, how about going to the track? I was like, all right, fine. So, no, so no. then, then I, was, I was thrust into the deep end. I was eight years into Formula One. I had no formal, you know, motorsport trackside training i didn't know you know like the, i didn't cut my teeth in mm. uh formula four i didn't cut my teeth doing any gt cars it was a baptism by fire and realistically it was it was sink or swim for the first year yeah. and a half easy and and so presumably at that point you go trackside you're now dealing with the race drivers so yep. <clears throat> you've got the likes of Paul Esther and Sergio Perez, people like that. How did you adapt to that? Was did again? Was it intimidating? Did you feel overawed by it with that sort of first time where you've got to talk at a level to a Formula One racing driver? How did it? How did it sit with you? Well, that's working in the simulator was good because you got experience talking to the drivers, asking them for feedback on stuff. But you know, when you're on the intercom in the garage talking to the driver between sessions, you know, in between runs about the car balance and stuff like that. At first, you know, I was working, um, at that time I was working with Jean-Pierre Lambiese. He was also the race engineer there. So I worked with GP my entire trackside career of six years. So three years at Force India and three years at Red Bull. Um, but talking to the drivers at first was pretty intimidating until you realize it's like, they're just other people on the team, you mm -hmm. know? And it's like, but more of it was the pressure on me to not say anything stupid because to be completely honest with you, I didn't know what I was doing at the time. <laughs> well, you know, like, realistically, I didn't know what I was doing. And I was, I was leaning very heavily on the performance engineer on the other car. I was leaning very heavily on GP um, to, to basically, okay, here's what's the bare minimum of stuff I need to do to make sure I don't cause an issue. And then how do I add performance to what's going on? So many so, so, of these, sorry, Tomo, I was just gonna say so many of these sort of high profile, high pressure jobs. I always find 
a lot of people don't know what they're doing and it is proper no. sink or swim and 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 you either capitulate under the pressure yep. or you embrace it and you learn and you and you get there but there are so many people i run into on a daily basis who i think you're in a really senior position and i don't know how you've got there you don't know yeah. what you're doing <laughs> but and that was that was one of those things it was like you know this is a, it's a, a high pressure job performance engineer you know one of the some of the main things you're looking after uh the brakes which are a huge safety item you need to you're the point of contact for brakes on the track uh brake balance at the time it was curs recovery so making sure you had enough energy harvest for race and qualifying and managing that and feeding that back to the driver uh differential settings and also fueling the car for both qualifying and the race those those are the kind of things if you screw up qualifying or race fuel you're disqualified or you do not finish the race so that you know those were some pretty high pressure things and in my first race event I had a huge sketch with qualifying fuel in Barcelona 2012 to the point where, you know, GP being cool head and having been a performance engineer for many years in the past, he was, you know, he got me, he's like, you know, um, you know, we'll end up with a couple laps too much fuel, but just add in, you know, whatever, three laps of fuel and we'll be good for the next run. And I was just like, you know, that's, that was huge pressure. And that's, oh my God. And there's the other situations like you're, you're monitoring the race fuel. And let's say that, uh, you know, you didn't realize that something happened with your fuel spreadsheet and you actually have a lap too little fuel that feeling at lap let's oh. say 20 out of 50 literally your heart sinks yeah uh your pulse goes through the roof and I'm, I'm talking about like physically your heart rate you know it's just this this response it's it's super high pressure because if you screw that up you've let a team of hundreds of people down and you well, know especially I mean if you're on for a result you look at um, Verstappen last year in the Red Bull at Singapore. I mean, what kind of insight can you give? Obviously, you weren't there, but that is essentially there was one lap, few, like not enough fuel, right? So Max couldn't complete the lap, and then yeah. he ended up qualifying down the order, and it ended up not being a great race for him. So, yeah, and what, that was what can you what insight can you give on that? And that was even even worse because that was what broke his win streak as well. So you know he the championship had been locked up. But that was one of these milestones that you only maybe get one shot in your career to do that potentially. So that's, you know, for him, you could tell the level of frustration because he knew exactly what it was. Singapore, not on pole. It's going to be a tough race, man. So Singapore last year was a really interesting thing. And I, the, the team did confirm this, but I was watching the race and I was like, I knew exactly what happened. So there's two things that happened. In qualifying, in changeable conditions, the number of laps you can do depends on the track condition so you know if the grip's high you could get eight laps in the session if the grip's low you can get seven or maybe even six so that's one thing then there's another aspect of that is the fuel consumption in the, in the wet condition if the grip is low you don't need much fuel per lap if the grip is high you need a lot of fuel per lap so you have this thing of trying to guess how much grip we can have in the session you know and that tells you both how many laps and how much fuel you can put in but if you miscalculate one of those slightly even if you think you've added margin, you can still end up underfueled by a lap, which is what happened. So hang on. So if you, so if it's a wet track, you don't need as much fuel. Yep. Why? Uh, the, the amount of time that you spend full throttle is lower. Uh, so, of course. From, yeah. So it's, it seems like it's like, how does that work? But realistically, the fuel flow rate is restricted to hundred kilos per hour. And, and most of the time, your fuel consumption is determined by the time that you spend full throttle. You know, the, the part throttle time is, you know, much, much lower consumption. So 
So you had that, you had the perfect storm of, is it seven or eight laps? Because in the intermediate conditions, you fuel for the session. You don't say we're going to do one timed. You put as much fuel as you can get in to do, make sure that you're on the track through the whole session because you saw that very last lap was the fastest lap possible. And it was way up before you had to box. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. But it's a, it's a really, like as a, as a performance engineer or a, uh, maybe the engine engineers are doing fuel at Red Bull now, it's a super fun game. It's like literally F1 manager and you're on, you're on speed and you're plugged into the adrenaline machine. You're talking to the race engineer, you're talking to strategy. What do you think the lap time is going to be? How much fuel consumption are we going to make? And you're like, the car's coming down the pit, like say a normal qualifying session, the car's coming down the pit lane after Q3 run one. You're looking at how much fuel is in the tank as it's entering the pit lane. You're burning off, you know, 10 grams, 10 grams, 10 grams. You're like, right, uh, add me, add seven kilos no 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 wait let's do 6.8 so that we only have like 300 grams of margin or 200 it's grams of margin mental. it's mental this must break some people like that scenario you just talked through there coming down the pit lane cars coming towards you, you can hear it you can see it coming you can see the fuel going down you've got to think quickly you've got to act fast there must be times where people have just completely lost their their shit and just got i don't yeah. know i've gone blank i got someone else no, is gonna have to deal with it that was that was me in spain in my first race so you know you've got this I don't, I'm not supposed to be here, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm really, I'm really, really under the pressure. And then you've got to make those decisions. And, you know, that's, that's the thing where it's like, it all is also a team. And like, when you have a, a, a well-seasoned race engineer, they know what's going on. It's like, right, well, we're going to be slightly suboptimal, but we're going to finish this qualifying session and don't worry about it. It's, it's, wow. it's wild, man. It's wild. Nice. But like, but like, imagine you're playing F1 manager. And you've got the adrenaline plugged into you and it's pumped up to 11, man. But that, that is race and performance engineering and strategy and all those people that have to make those decisions because everybody's looking at you. And if you, and if you, maybe like if you're a performance engineer, nobody's looking at you, but if you screw up, everybody's yeah. looking at you. It, it, it's the kind of job, isn't it? That when you get your job done right, it's just expected and there's not a big for all. Whereas if you get it wrong, then it's like yeah. again singapore last year there's all eyes on that that's a memorable incident right so you don't necessarily get the like did you have to within the team did you need kind of a pat on the back internally to be like you've done a good job because you're not going to get that from the outside world you know what i mean nah nah i mean i mean you you had i, I think it was one of the things you get used to it it is a really um a, a thankless job sometimes but at the same time when your driver has a really good qualifying session, you're making changes to the car throughout the session, you know, in qualifying, dialing in the tools to make sure the brake balance of the differential rider, they've got an issue at turn three. And it's like, we need to do this. It's like, right, here's a suggestion. What about this? Or you help them find something. It's like, you know that you've done something useful. And, and if not, if you only have one of those moments, you know that you did a good job. And if the driver got the most out of it, you, you're happy, you know, and it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's a difficult one, but at the most at most of the time, like race engineering, performance engineering is usually pretty thankless. Yeah, it can be. And if, if you get a, if you get a great result, you know everybody's happy and you you share in that collectively. But uh, it's one it of the things terrifying. Like it's it's, it's making fun. me feel panicky just talking through it. Yeah, like sweaty it, right now. Yeah, I would be useless. Like I I just sit there and go blank. Like I can't do. It's like a, I'm rubbish at maths. So if someone starts talking to me about maths, my brain just switches off. I just 
I go blank. That's what would happen to me. I'd go completely blank. I'd just stop talking and people would just have to pick me up and remove me from the situation. It'd just be a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's move it on to drivers. You, you've worked, well, you've been very lucky. I mean, Red Bull, you've worked with some terrific drivers. So uh, like we said earlier, you work with Sergio Perez. You've also worked with Max Verstappen. Um, what attributes did you see in Perez? I mean, at the moment, it's, he's, I mean, he's competing on a fairly level playing field with, with Max at the moment. He's doing really well. But over the course of the season, I think many believe he'll probably drop off at some point. Do you think his talent is, though, overlooked sometimes? How highly do you rate Sergio versus someone like Max Verstappen? I think, let's put it in perspective, though. Because, like, Sergio is an excellent driver by every account. You know, several podiums for Cindy. Very, very good on the tires. You know, it's like that conundrum. Uh, go fast, save tires. He does that very well. He's got a very good sense for traction and how to use the tires and how to manage them and save them. When, when we started, um, when I started working with him, he came off of McLaren and it was, it, I didn't think he was a super, super technical driver, or maybe at the time McLaren, you know, weren't helping him understand all the systems they were using on the car, but it was very clear that he was good at driving the car and explaining what was going on. And he was one of those guys, if, if the car's in the window, he'll excel every single time. But then you get somebody like, like Max, who's l literally 100% from FP1. It does, there's no build up. It's literally out. I did. I was looking at something uh, during the broadcast last week. Crofty was talking about, you know, how late do they, you know, I'd love to see how they break because in Miami, the track condition was gripping up. Well, and it's, I think this is probably not super specific to Max, but it goes to show you the level they're on. His first run does a cider, you know, just cruises around the lap, out lap, does a cider lap, checks the grip, everything, breaks. The next lap, breaks 20 meters later, makes the corner. The next lap breaks 20 meters later again. And then the, the next run, he brings it back by like five meters. And you're considering they're going top speed is about 80 meters in a single second. So you, you put that in perspective of how precise, and that, that's a representation of all the guys, but Max specifically goes out very aggressive, very early. Um, and the thing that set him apart from a lot of his teammates, especially recent teammates in the past, is the amount of instability that he can cope with on the car. I think you talked with with Alex about that. Yeah. Albon. And I worked in the simulator a lot with Albon because I was back in the factory at that point as a simulator performance engineer, but looking at longer term development. And that was one of the things. It's like we spent a lot of time looking for what are the tools that don't take performance off of the car that add stability to the car in the places where you need it, whereas like the late entry where you have to trust that you you're leaning into the steering, you're turning in. And you have to expect that that car is going to stick. And if there's a control loop in your head saying, this is bad, um, you, you can't trust that car and you can't confidently attack that car every lap. Whereas some, that's something that Max does that set him apart. But so far this season, Checo has been there. Like some, some, of the, some Fridays and Saturdays, not quite. But for the most part, Checo's off to a super, super strong season. And... Uh, that's not an easy task. So how does Max's approach change? D does that change your job at all? So say, for example, on you're, you're given, right, in one timeline, Blake, your performance engineer to Sergio Perez, another timeline, your performance engineer to Max Verstappen. How do you do your job differently to account for each drivers? Because it sounds like they are, as much as they're both very, very talented, they're also quite different in their approaches. Yeah. 
I think from a performance engineering point of view, it's literally the this this loop, you know, this this feedback loop of, for example, let's talk specifically from a performance engineering point of view. Like we're working with the driver on the differential and the brake balance and the engine braking, which is basically the only tools A they have that they can adjust in the car on a lap or during the race. Everything else is locked park from it. You can't change the springs or bars or the setup. You can change the front wing angle, which you can only do between runs, or you've got the brake balance. And I'm working on a video about, you know, why the brake balance is so exciting and how it makes Formula One drivers insane at braking, able to get so much out of the car is the level of optimization you can make. And some drivers on a qualifying lap might make two changes. You know, let's say that you, let's go, let's think of Barcelona. You've got turn one. Maybe your front tires aren't quite in the window. Uh, so you need a little bit more deceleration off of the rear axle. A, because the front tires aren't ready. B, that helps rotate the car when you're using the rear axle more to brake. So, right, you've got turn one. You Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Go all the way around the lap. Maybe turn five's a little bit tricky as it's downhill, a little bit off-camber. Um, and then you go through down to turn 10. So you've gone through the fast right-hander, you're at top speed, uh, and you're braking with DRS on into turn 10. You probably need a different brake balance for that. And then maybe, find, let's say, well, we don't have a chicane anymore, but maybe you get to the chicane and you need something else. So that's the kind of loop that the driver, A, needs CPU in order to say, what's the car doing? Is there anything with the brakes that we can do? And then the performance engineer is looking through that data as well, saying, I noticed the rear brakes are locking into turn 10. Is it bothering you? And can we do anything about that? And then if they have the processor to be able to pick that up, and both both Max and Checo were good at that. Um, but Max Max was quite good. He and Both of them were quite good. It's like, right, uh, I've got rear locking in turn 10. It's like, cool. Um, but you, you have to give them a change. It's like, okay, it's this and this on the steering wheel. Can you do that? And then go back after that corner. Yeah, okay, cool. And they're doing that lap after lap after lap. How much of your um, reactive work on the pit lay, on the pit wall is down to the feedback from the drivers, and how much is down to because you only take a, essentially a skeleton crew out to the race itself. You've got a huge amount of people back at base in mission control doing their thing and reviewing data. Have you got them on in one ear going, "Hey Blake, look out for this. Watch that. Something's happening." And you've got the drivers saying other things are feeding into you. What are all the data points that are coming into you during the race a race for performance engineer and race engineer that's pretty interesting so we'll take the race engineer out that guy's he's looking after gaps on track he's looking after strategy uh looking after communications with the driver and the performance engineer is feeding him you know any information coming from the factory any relevant stuff goes to the engineers go to the driver um 
performance engineer, you've got a couple things. And I've got a cool story about Miami last week, which is, makes it very clear what was happening because it was broadcast quite well. Um, you're talking to aerodynamics performance engineers looking at maybe there's an issue you have at a collision. How much, how much aero balance have you lost? Let's say you get damaged to the side of the floor. Have you lost aero balance? Okay, the engineer needs to know that because you need to make a front wing adjustment for the next stint because you know how much you need to take off for the next tire. But what about we've lost a percent of aero balance because we've got a hole in the side pod kind of thing. So that's, that's one thing. Um, the next is maybe there's people at the back of the factory looking after brake health. And it's like, oh, we noticed that this is happening. And the performance engineers are like a lot of systems health, a lot of performance stuff. But you're also getting feedback from the guys at the factory like, hey, we've noticed your brake wear is quite high. You might need to make some changes for that. Talk to the, and then you'll take that information and talk to the race engineer. He'll package that up to deal with the driver. But a cool story from Miami was we saw a lot of people having issues in the high speed section, five, six into seven in qualifying. Leclerc had issues there. Uh, Max had issues there on his first run. And it was a very tricky corner during the race. And throughout the race, if you go back and listen to Max's onboard, there's a really interesting conversation between the driver and race engineer talking about brake balance and differential settings, for cornering balance. And that's the kind of like reactive work you're doing. You're having a dialogue during a race. It's like, what's the problem? Help me pinpoint this. You take that information, you go look at the data, look at the wheel slips, look at the balance and say, okay, we've got a brake balance map and a diff map that can maybe help this. And they're trying stuff through the whole middle stint. And actually you saw that he found a lot of performance there as they stabilized the car on that, on that super, super long, uh, that was on the hard stint in the middle of it. And that was one of the things like you, you look back at that as a performance engineer, um, and that's the, that's the kind of work that you do on a Sunday that helps make a difference. Because if they hadn't resolved that, there's a very good chance that Max might not have had as great of a charge through on that hard tire on that long run. How do you, because um, you're coming from the engineer point of view, you look at the date, the numbers, the theoretical optimum versus a driver who's a fleshy human being who can make mistakes who has good days and bad days. How close would you say, Blake, these drivers are, having worked with Checo, with Max Verstappen, how close are they to the theoretical optimum, do you think? That's a really interesting question. And I think rather, I'll turn that question on its head and ask it a different way. Because a lot of the time, there's engineers that are like, oh, this is the optimum solution. And it's like, that's not even remotely drivable. And you are dealing with, a human who is uh, prone to mistakes, they have tendencies and characteristics they like. And I think one of the things that you see that Red Bull has done really well with their approach to engineering the car and running the car is they've taken that very much into consideration, the human aspect. Like use the numbers, use the simulations and tools to find here's where the, the performance is and understand like if the simulation says this super peak characteristic gives you a lot of performance. You go back and you test that and you feel, you know, work with the drivers through the simulators, like, all right, what about this? Let's say you've got 10% more peak, but it has really weird characteristics and has lots of drop off once you go outside this window. Or what are you faster over a race or a qualifying lap? Or this thing that has 10% less peak and it has very little drop off, which one do you like? And, and, and working through that and making comprom good compromises between the analytical technical optimum and what is usable performance and i think that's something that they do really well there's um 
there's one thing I wanted to ask both of you actually. So to get to get a perspective from a performance engineer, someone you know very much who's been on the inside of Formula One, and from a fan's perspective with you, Tom. So, and and I, I we spoke about this on I did a, a the race podcast recently, um, the F1 Focus one, and we talked about this with Alex Brundle and got his take on DRS. And you know DRS is quite a polarizing thing. Everyone understands why it's been brought in, but Blake. To you first, from an engineering perspective, are you a fan of DRS? Is it good for the spectacle or should we bin it all together? I th- I will say right now, with these cars, it is a necessary evil. And let's 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 take us aside because we've got you've got cars that are in a different league using DRS to pass a car. Let's, let's say, for example, when you have a Red Bull coming through the pack after they've yeah. done a stop. That, that's not that's not a useful comparison. Look at Miami as a specific. Look at the midfield. There were great wheel-to-wheel battles. And it's, I'm taking one event. Like, we need to realistically look at the whole season. Um, I think DRS is a necessary evil right now, considering how draggy the cars are and, and how much downforce you want to have on them. They're, they're big. They're way too big for what, from the optimum, for a, from a spectacle point of view. I don't love it, but I think it's necessary. Mm. otherwise you know you, you have the concept of the drs train and it's a bad horrible thing what do you mm. call a pack of cars that are unable to overtake that don't have drs if you removed it you'd call it a train of cars <laughs> you know so it's, it's like it's, you, you tag this name onto this thing but that's not actually the problem the problem is um overtaking is quite difficult unless you can generate a pace gap, which in the midfield, we say a pace gap is good because the cars are quite close. You know, you look at a fourth back to eighth place team on any given race weekend. Those cars are pretty close in terms of performance. Mm. So, okay, you can't generate overtakes that way. You will you'll have moves on the brakes and stuff. And we saw a lot of those in Miami. The only way you generate overtakes is by generating a top speed delta. And yes, if the, if the DRS overtake happens, you know, as soon as you go full throttle, that's boring. I'm not excited about that, you know, but if you have moves on the braking, that's exciting. Yeah, I, I think I think necessary evil is the, the right way of putting it, because I mean, what makes Formula One Formula One is the fact it's open wheel, the fact that you've got these big wings. There is a certain aesthetic I think we associate with Formula One that's different to, say, NASCAR, where these, you know, saloons can go 200 and 200 plus mile an hour within millimeters of each other, lap after lap after lap, right? So I, I think if we want to preserve that aesthetic of these cars and have such reliant on this external aero, obviously, yes, ground effect is helping take away that focus on that external aero, but it's still a part of, of the racing. I, I think active aero going forward, you know, DRS is one form of active aero. I think if we want to make continue to make these cars more efficient, which is clearly something that's important to to f1 not just with the engines but also yeah having you know aerodynamics that move during the race that potentially could then cause less dirty air it's it's difficult as well where i think i think we need to give these regulations more time to kick in exactly as you say like if you look at the midfield and how close that is if you look right now every single team in five races has made q3 at least once every single team all 10 so Yes, Red Bull were taken away at the front, but actually when you look at the totality of it and not don't just focus on the top, actually the sport is 
very competitive right now. I'd argue as competitive as it's ever been from top to tail anyway, because you've always had, you know, teams hanging off the back and that are nowhere near. We don't really have that now, which is good. I just think that, yeah, I, I don't think banning DRS is, is the solution because of what, unless we're going to turn these cars into big Formula Fords with no front and rear wing. Um, maybe, maybe let's do that. And, but even then you still get the wheel wake, don't you? Because I mean, the tires yep. themselves kick up loads of, yeah, don't they, Blake? Yeah, we could, we could. There won't be Formula cars too soon if we do that. Exactly. Yeah. It's 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 uh, it's such a conundrum, isn't it, to get yep. the balance right? But I, I mean, I, I don't mind it particularly. Um, but um, I know a lot of people. It, it turns them off because they think it's manufactured fun. Um, but you know, it's also interesting to see how the teams develop it. I mean, like you say, Red Bull, uh, they've whatever they've done to their DRS is just ridiculously better than anyone else mm. on the grid so you know you've got to just hold your hands up and go fair play they've they've um you know maximize their their, their knowledge to uh to but also I, I i think i think even that like correct me if i'm wrong blake but the the benefit that red bull get from their drs relative to the rest of the, relative to say i think the Haas is like the second most efficient from what i've seen like mm. that i think there's other things that play into you know, when Max took off past Lewis in Australia, well, I think Lewis's sector was like a second slower anyway than his previous. So I think, I don't think, I'm I'm, I'm reluctant to get carried away with, you know, because it is fine margins. We were talking when we spoke on, on, on Monday, Blake, like it's about half a percent, which is a lot. In, in, in modern F1, that's a lot. But you go back into the glory days of the, the 90s and 80s and 70s, these cars were finishing like three laps behind. And yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It, it's always been like that with F1. That's the thing. Yeah. This isn't abnormal. Yeah. This is how it's always been. Yeah, the glory I, days. They're, they're rose-tinted glasses, isn't it? Yeah, I it, will say, looking back statistically, I did, a, I did an analysis looking at 2021 versus 2022. Um, and my buddy Jasper and I did a... a deep dive on all the races throughout the season and it was something like the average gap reduced by i think it was a, a very substantial margin across the board you know every single race like for like um spread was closer the the time that the cars spent with one in one second of each other had increased substantially so the the regulations are going in the right direction uh, we had a, a hint that in Baku that cars couldn't follow as well. Then you go to Miami and it's like you have a gaggle of cars like this stacked on top of each other. So uh, the, I, I think it's it's worth making sure that we look at seasons as a whole, clusters of races. Some races have very, very weird things. But I, I think the quality of races is improving. And I think the thing people are talking about, overtakes. Overtakes are not really important as a metric. You know, because we, we look at... Um, and even the ability to follow closely, like Silverstone last year was was a great race, but it had huge field spread, like one of the highest of the season. And like, okay, that's not the metric on a. The, the last thing I'll say on is the thing that we need is we need battles, not a single lap overtake. You need a battle. You need cars, tooth and nail, wheel to wheel for two or three laps in a row. We get, give me a couple of those, and I'll be happy every day. Give me a dive on the brakes. I'm a little bit excited. Give me an overtake on DRS early in the straight. I'm kind of bored, but give me a battle that lasts two laps between any drivers. Sign me up. Inject yeah, more I, of that. I, I agree with you. And, and you want to see an overtake that's earned. 
You know, you, you look at Formula E in Berlin the other week, there were over 300 overtakes in two races, you know, that, and, and which, which is great on one hand, a lot of, you know, I think that's fantastic entertainment, but is it too easy? You know, just swapping places left, right and center. Is it really, is that really what we want? Um, I, I think we'd argue probably not in Formula One. Um, but, it makes um, it, it makes it difficult also to follow the narratives because you have, you know, you, if you have 10 narratives unfolding simultaneously, you can't give any of them True. the due attention and you can't give all of them any attention. Yeah. Absolutely. This Absolutely. is what I, I think people think, you, you know, we want all 20 cars to be able to fight for race wins. I don't think so. I, I think part of what made 2021 was so competitive is because you had two drivers from two different teams head to head and you have that breakup and that's typically how it works in sports. You have the big names who typically rise to the top, but you also have the underdog stories and you wouldn't get those yeah. underdog stories if everyone could win. So... Yeah, but it's yeah. a technology race as well, isn't it? And you and yep. you want the the big brains, sure. you know, to rise to the top, not just the drivers. It's a, it's a tech race. Anyway, we could go on on this for for hours. Um, <laughs> we we've nearly, we've kept you long enough, Blake. So we'll we'll come on to our final three, which are brought to us by our our sponsors at WTF1Talent.com. Head to WTF1Talent if you're a budding F1 content creator and interested to hear how you can supercharge your career. So, uh, Tom, do you want to kick off with number one? Of course. So, Blake. What has got you excited at the moment? Is it okay if it's not Formula One? Yes, yep. of course. I am really excited to go to my first endurance race since the Petit Le Mans in 2007. I'm going to the 100th anniversary of the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Uh, awesome. I'm so oh, excited. Amazing. You know, and I've been so isolated in the world of Formula One as, as a professional now, as a content creator on the outside for... 12 years and now it's like I'm, I'm i'm opening my eyes i knew it's out there i just didn't have time or mental capacity to think about everything else but now i'm gonna go see it i'm gonna go see some of my friends driving and it's gonna be a blast uh i'm so, I'm, I'm so thrilled for that i'm honestly like goosebumps thinking about it i think the uh the yeah 24 hour lemon is is one of those Wait, just a, a follow-up question to that just briefly what is there a place still for the rest of the world endurance championship when you look at like the six hours races you know is it with the attention spans of people these days do people really want to watch a six hour race i don't know i, I know there's there's the super enthusiasts that do want to watch and here's what the only thing i will say is i, I maybe i didn't look hard enough but the highlights I, I, five minutes of highlights from the six hours of spa is not enough there's no there's no narratives it's like here's a crash here's a crash here's who won so I, I feel like that needs a little bit of love because if you could if you could boil that six hour down and then drip feed it to somebody and give them the narratives and the strategy and how it works, I think you'd get a lot more people excited about it because I think that's super lacking. We had we had Drive to Survive do the Formula One thing where you focus on the drama and then you pulled all these people in. You have so many people consuming. I mean, Tomo, you you speak to this, the, the growth of your YouTube channel, which, which is congratulations. I can't wait to see it. I'm going to unsubscribe and resubscribe just to give you a little bit of momentum. <laughs> but, um, you know, you've seen that. And Dude, that's <laughs> and that's that's down to the perfect storm of Drive to Survive, all the content, yeah. ton, all the content creators as well, including it in that. And then that. But it's like, it, where's that? Where's that for what? You know, yeah. where is that? And I, and You're I, right. I, it's not it's good got, enough to just cut it up. Like you need to. It's got the chemistry. Feed. It's got the you drama. Do like extra highlights. Yeah. You need to do supercharged highlights where there is actually maybe something on screen that tells you like, oh, and this. Is, yeah, you're right. It definitely mm. needs repackaging. I think. I, I think. I think it could use. I think there's some low hanging fruit there potentially. But yeah, mm. I'm excited about that. Second question for you. 
how much of your success do you put down to luck and right place, right time? And how much do you put down to sheer hard work and grafting? Um, I'll, I'll take being lucky any day. But at the so same time, be in the right place for it. Exactly. And I, and I feel like that, that, that notion is you completely nailed that one there. You have to put in the work in order to put yourself in a good position. If you fluke it, you can fluke it once and you, you probably won't be able to sustain anything off of that. It's the same thing of having like a, let's say a piece of short form content pop off. It gets millions of views. What are you going to do with that? Nothing. Yep. Yep. If, you can't, if, you can't, if you can't do it again, if you don't have anything to package around that, it can have a huge growth on other platforms and then all the other platforms go dead because it was just luck. So I, I think in, in my context of, you know, getting into Formula One, there was a lot of hard work. I didn't have a life for a very long time and it's a very single-minded approach to a lot of these things. And I worked pretty hard. I made the right connections. I made, met the right people, but I was also the right person that was there. The same thing goes for getting the job as trackside engineer when they needed somebody. I had put in the work. I'd had the enthusiasm. I had not screwed up too much or at all. And they're like, right, can you be that person that fills the spot now? And then sink or swim, I didn't, I didn't sink. Um, I, I swam pretty well and then ended up getting a job at Red Bull after that, which was, which I don't think a lot of people knows that was to be Sebastian Vettel's performance engineer, just coming off of all those world championships. And he was like, I was like, okay, at that point I was like, okay, maybe I'm not a fraud. <laughs> I don't know. And then he left. He was like, oh, Blake's coming. Uh, I can't, I'm going to have to go to Ferrari. Yeah, yeah. That guy's shit. <laughs> yeah. No, so um, I, I think you, you make, you make, you make your own luck, but you've, you've got to put in the work yeah. and you've got to position yourself everything absolutely yeah absolutely all right final question blake apart from this bright fluorescent mercedes t-shirt which obviously is a red bull boy um terrifying. must terrify you somewhat what are you scared of blake how much time you got <laughs> as long as you need no one thing. lie down on the couch no what am i scared of uh i don't know it's a really that's a really really tough question um i really here's one thing i don't like I do not like speaking up on something that I don't know about. And the idea of being put on the spot to answer something that I don't know about and saying the wrong thing, I will always, like, I, I have this problem a lot. It's like people will lean very heavily into stuff that they're completely uneducated on and be very abrasive, especially on the, the, the toilet, which is F1 Twitter. And it's, it's a lot that. of the time... Yeah, funny that. But it's like, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to speak up on topics that I'm not well informed of because I've pride myself on trying to be authentic and genuine i'm not i'm not there to get a, a quick win for for you know for for clout i'm like if i don't know anything about this i'm going to tag somebody else that does or i'm going to go away and do some research so that's saying something um and not saying the right thing that, that's good. that's terrifying um i'm going to add a fourth very very quick one Ooh. are you you uh You've dived into this content creator world. You've got great traction. Things are looking good. But will you ever go back to Formula One? I don't think so. And, and I'll tell you why. I, I feel like Formula One is is getting big, is getting really, really big. And it's not this super agile dynamic. I mean, it's still, it is still super agile and dynamic, but it's like everybody is super, super specialized. You have, you know, you don't have people like Adrian Newey now don't have the ability to change the direction of the entire organization now like they could before. There's too many moving parts. There's too much technically going on. How many aerodynamicists do you actually have in a Formula One team now? 
and then you expand that concept to everything else in it. I don't, I'm not that interested in it anymore because you're, you're super, super specialized in everything you do. And I have done enough of that specialization. I'm not, I don't find, I don't think I'm the best at anything I've ever done, but I'm still curious. And if I'm paid to do one very specific thing that takes all the time off of my plate to learn about all these other things, you know, the idea of learning about IndyCar, the technology, WEC, Formula E, spending more time consuming this stuff and talking about it with people like you is what gets me excited. Uh, going and optimizing the aerodynamic drag correlation model for the wind tunnel for a month at a time is fun. But uh, I don't want to do that for three more months. And I don't want to, you know, like, you know, diet, tuning in the tire model. Um, very specific studies. I want to. I want to do bigger picture stuff. I want to look at it. And even if I was a, a senior technical person, there's too many politics and anything else involved. I'm having too much yeah. fun right now. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That, that's that's so often. It's like going in from a small business um, where you need lots of people. Who, when you need fewer people that can do lots of different things, versus a bigger business where you become everyone's a smaller cog in the machine, so everyone's specialized. And I guess yeah, it's been that gradual. Maybe you know, WEC IndyCar one day we'll see Blake on the pit wall. Them. There might be something yeah. else in the near future, but I can't talk about it. <gasps> Ooh. Oh, oh what a <laughs> I'm messaging you after this to tell yeah. me. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> uh, well, listen, Blake, it's been fascinating having you on. My my brain is slightly melting now as I sort of try and unpack some of the uh, performance engineering bits and pieces. But um, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for taking the time, and uh, I'm sure we'll chat to you again. But for now, Blake, thanks for joining us on the Motormouth Podcast. Thank you so much, Tim, Tomo. I'll see you guys soon. I'm sure of it. Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials, Twitter at Motormouth underscore, Instagram at Motormouth underscore official and Facebook, just search Motormouth. You can also download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV, create your own social profile to interact with other fans and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy. We're also proud to be supporting the Brain Tumor Charity too. So make sure you check the links in the podcast description to find out how you can help cure brain tumors quicker. Don't forget to like, subscribe and review. And until next time, you've been listening to the Motormouth Podcast.